<clears throat> Psalm 98. This morning we're going to take a dive into what God's word says about what we just did in singing. Consider what the scriptures are exhorting us to do, why we do what we do. So hopefully this morning you'll come away with a clearer understanding of what it is that we do on Sunday morning. It's not simply just warm up for the sermon, uh, getting you awake so you don't fall asleep, but there is a serious purpose to this. Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song. You'd ask why. For he has done marvelous things. Then he goes on to describe these marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And then you could really almost add, not going to add to scripture, but you could add a so or a therefore. So make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we look into your word, may you, O Holy Spirit, teach us. May our hearts be stirred, our affections for you grow. As we've just read in Psalm 98 and rehearsed in our liturgy, the glorious things, the marvelous things that you've done. May we, like the psalmist, have our hearts motivated to sing your praises, whatever state of life we may be in, because you are the unchanging God, worthy of all of our praises, and you have commanded us to sing praises to you. So help us now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Nine times in Psalm 98, there are exhortations to sing, to sing praises to the Lord. This is the most condensed psalm that is giving us these exhortations and commands to sing praises. Psalm 98 is like a vivid panorama describing praise to God through song. But you notice verse five, there's that musical instrumentation of the lyre and the trumpet. It's an aid but alone, it's, it's not enough. I contend that Psalm 98, the psalmist, if this is, this is a song, the crescendo of the song is actually the people lifting their voices in song in praise to God. Oh, sing to the Lord. Break forth into joyous song. Sing praises. Make a joyful noise. Sing for joy. That's what the psalmist is calling us to do. Everything else musically is subservient to this command to sing. Right? That's why we say at Calvary, the congregational voice is the lead instrument in our worship. Right? We don't want what we do to ever distract from that. So I hope it never comes across as distracting, but what we do is just an aid to you. The hymn writer Christian Bateman penned these words, which echo so many of the Psalms. When he said, come Christians, join to sing. Loud praise to Christ our King. Let all with heart and voice before his throne rejoice. Praise is his gracious choice. Alleluia, amen. 
So this morning, we're going to consider why are Christians to join to sing? Why do we do this each and every Sunday? And really, there's two things that I want to do. First, I'm just going to ask the question, why do we sing? We're going to look at two reasons from the scripture. And then what I want to do is I hope to touch on some things that will serve as an encouragement to you, to encourage you to sing. Because I know that some people, when it comes to singing, they're discouraged by it. They're not, wouldn't think of themselves as naturally musically gifted or didn't grow up around music. And so it's hard sometimes to sing, but yet the scriptures are very clear where to be doing this. So these things that we look at this morning, my prayer is they will be an encouragement that will help you overcome any discouragement you might feel in singing. So why do we sing? There are many reasons, but we have a limited amount of time, so we're only going to touch on two, okay, this morning. The first one is simply this. We sing because it's commanded. Scripture commands us to sing, right? We think about all the other commands that God gives. We read this morning from the Ten Commandments, but do we often think of singing as a command from God? It is. Over 50 times, at least at a minimum, do we see the command to sing? Some people would say it's a, over, about a hundred times we see this command to sing in the scripture. Consider these commands from Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Or Psalm 147, verse seven. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine. There's a command but be filled with the Spirit. Here's the command, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's no qualifiers attached to these commandments. You're simply told to do it. Sing to the Lord. The command from God to sing should be received like any other command he gives. We read, open the scriptures, we're, we come across a command, and we, what do we do? God has said that. It's good. I believe it. I will receive that and obey it. We know these things about the commands of God. Remember what Jesus said in John 14? He said, if you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. Okay, so, so I love the Lord. I'm going to keep his commandments, his commandments to sing. Or John also tells us in 1 John that this is the love of God that you keep my commandments. And then he goes on to say, and this is, this is wonderful because oftentimes people will think of commands as a burden, and what does John say? They're not burdensome. Right? So any command that God gives is a good command, and it's not a burden. It's for our good. So when it comes to the command to sing, as, as we see in the scriptures, we know it comes from a loving Father who gives us commands for our good. So then we can, we can go, okay, I know that God is good. He loves me. He gives me commands for my good. So what what might be good about singing, you ask? Well, let me, let me give you a couple of things, okay? Here's a couple of ways that God's commands to sing, he intends something good for us. Just, just two, two of these. Singing helps us memorize God's word. Is that a good thing, to memorize God's word? Absolutely, right? And, and how many songs do we sing that are scripture verbatim, or at least are communicating clearly the truth of scripture? I hope you say all of them. Right? If, you say, if you say, oh, there's a few that are, okay, then we need to talk about those songs. Um, but singing helps us memorize God's word. That we might know his will and obey him. Of course, in Psalm 119, we're familiar with what he said. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So singing is an easy way to memorize. Some people say, I have a hard time just memorizing scripture. I'll bet you don't have near as hard a time memorizing it when it's put to song. 
So it's a wonderful way that we can hide God's word in our heart. That means it's, it's a spiritual good that God has commanded us to sing. Or how about this one? Singing helps us grow our love for the Lord. And by this, I mean there are times we proclaim and say things that are true about God that we may not feel internally sometimes. Right? But when we gather together and we sing the same truths over and over, we're preaching to ourselves. And then by faith, we're going, God, make this true in my heart that I do love you. And it, 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 it becomes the cry of our hearts and our souls. We're singing because God has commanded us to. And then we pray, Lord, help me believe this in my heart. Grow my love and my affections for you. So to sing, first of all, we say is a command from God. We obey it by faith. We believe what God has said and we act. The second reason that we're gonna talk about why we sing is it is for our spiritual good, as we've just seen. But here's the other part. Turn to Colossians chapter three. We sing because others need you to sing. Your singing is good for everyone else. As we've already, I think, experienced this morning. We sing because in our songs, we're teaching and admonishing one another. That's what Paul brings out in Colossians 3. Have you ever considered that fact that when we gather together, I need you to sing to me? Some of you would probably say, well, no, not really. <laughs> Maybe not in private, I guess. It's just out in the hall. Hold on, Graham, let me just sing this to you. Well, it could be a blessing, but it might be a little awkward too at the same time. But then we would we believe what God says and we obey that, right? But no, we do. We need, we need one another and we need one another to sing to one another. Colossians 3 is one of these passages where we see the command to sing, but we see more fully why we're commanded to do it. So look at Colossians 3, start in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This entire passage that Paul is working in, in Colossians 3, the first, the prior verses, verses 5 through 11, he's admonishing us, put off sinful practices. Put away certain things that are not befitting your new life in Christ. And then in its place, starting in verse 12, he's saying, put these practices on instead. Act out these things. These things fit with your new identity of being raised to life with Christ as he starts the chapter. Notice in verses 12 through 14, we are shown these attitudes, actions, and characteristics. And then notice this. These are predominantly about how we relate to one another. That's what they're predominantly about. How we relate to one another. How we think about one another. How we feel towards one another. How we relate to one another. How we, how we respond when we've been wronged. There's an interpersonal aspect that Paul is dealing with here in Colossians 3. And it's in this context, Paul says, sing. In this interpersonal relationship. These things, he says, in verse 15, are not perfectly 
but they are seen in people who are ruled by the peace of Christ. Right? This is the, the attitudes, the actions that should be coming out of us. And then in verse 16, he goes on and he adds this admonishment, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Now, the word of Christ there is the, the gospel word, the word about Christ that has been preached to you. And it, that word dwell is that it is coming to abide, to take up residence in you. And then it r- dwells in you richly. That means you're familiar with it. This is the, the, the water you swim in is the gospel truth about Christ. We learn more about him through teaching, right? That's, that's as we open up God's word, the spirit teaches us, we gather together, we teach, others teach. That's how we learn more about Christ. And then what does Paul say though? He adds this one other aspect of teaching. And what is it? It's singing. Through our singing, we're teaching one another. One of the ways we're taught and admonished is through song. When spirit-filled Christians sing from the heart, they're teaching and admonishing one another. Now, to teach is to instruct, right? To, to give, this is the truth you need to believe, right? This is, this is what is right. This is what is wrong. This is what the scriptures say, what they mean. To admonish is to reprove or to correct, but to do it gently. So we gather each week, you think about this, we gather and each one of us is coming in here with something that we're not believing rightly. Our thinking is askew in a way. We're, we're not uh, thinking truthfully about ourselves, about who God is, about the sin in our lives. And so we need to be admonished and to be corrected. We need to be taught as to what is truth. And so our singing together is a way in which the Lord gently and graciously by his spirit teaches and admonishes us. Consider this, you come, we come together, each and every one of us, laden with guilt and sin. Sometimes we feel like we're stuck in a never-ending cycle of sin, like the hamster on the wheel, right? And I need you to tell me this, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I need to hear that and you need to hear that and you're teaching me as we sing that together. You're admonishing me to think rightly about my sin and what God has done for it. That's glorious. Or we come together with our fears and anxieties and I need to hear you sing what we sang this morning. I can trust my Savior Jesus when my darkest doubts befall. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. You admonished me about how to set my affections right. Or maybe you come together on a Sunday morning and you don't feel like singing. Like, oh man, this is a drag. So you need to pray this. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing sing thy praise. We come together and we doubt God's love for us. So we need to sing how great, how sure his love endures forevermore. It's a magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. Do you ever need to be told that? To be admonished? To be taught about that? Or perhaps you're not worshiping God rightly. Perhaps you're convicted by Deuteronomy 5 and that you're an idolater. So you need to be taught through your singing who God is. So we sing holy, holy, holy. Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, 
There is none beside thee, perfect in power, love, and purity. Or perhaps the hope that we look forward to one day when we'll be in the presence of the Lord, that seems distant or intangible, right? Because we're people of the earth, we're embodied, and we think, like, can that be real? What will that be like? It's scary. And so we need to sing, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. Do you see how songs teach and admonish us? And every one of us needs to hear these truths and we need to be singing them to one another. So we sing because we're commanded and through obedience to this command, we bless others. And here's a a gentle correction or an admonishment. If you choose not to sing or if you refuse to sing, you miss out on an opportunity to bless somebody else. The other thing that's, that's helpful to think about in this, because you could say, well, how is that? If Singing is aided by knowledge of one another. If I know you and I know the struggles you're walking through, the sorrows that you're dealing with, your story When we come together and we know that background and then we see one another singing these glorious truths, does that minister to your heart? It absolutely should. That's that's why I wanted to lead this morning. I don't like not being up front because I get to see you all sing. I get to see people that are walking through the valley of the shadow of death singing glorious truths about how the Lord sustains them. So here's here's something for you to try When we sing, look around the room sometime. Look at the person across the way and see see that person. You know what they dealt with this last week and go, they're singing that with such great joy. That ministers to my heart. That's why the lights are up here. We don't turn them down because we want you to sing and see one another and I want to see you, okay? So what a blessing it is to sing. Obey this command because you don't know how your obedience to this command the Lord might use in the life of another person. Two reasons to sing. Now I want to shift for just a moment and I want to touch on some encouragements to sing. <clears throat> because I, again, like as I said earlier, some people are sitting here and you go, but Graham, you don't know. Like music is not my thing. I don't listen to music. I don't sing at all. You really don't want me to sing. And, and I can't physically sing. And so I think the scriptures give us some encouragements to sing. That that what the Lord has instructed us to do, it is actually the best thing for us. So first of all, it's this. The scriptures encourage us to sing through every season of life, through every emotion from joy to sorrow. You can think about emotions that we experience, they're on a spectrum, you could say. Here's sorrow, lament, sadness, and death. Here's jubilant and joy and happiness, and we're called to sing in every single one of those emotions. The Psalms are the hymn book of the scriptures. I don't know if you realize that or not. You open up the Psalms, that's their hymnal. Every single Psalm was sung. It's a musical piece of work. And how many of the Psalms, if you, and we talked about this when we did the, the Old Testament survey, how many people would say the Psalms are their favorite book of the Bible? Quite a few. And I think part of the reason is, is because we can identify with them so easily. They're emotional. They're raw, they connect. We, we read that and we go, I know what he's experiencing. I know what he's feeling. And so the Psalms 
And for the people who sing them, for the psalmists who wrote them, what are they doing as they write these songs, as they sing these songs to the Lord? Well, I would, I would contend it's doing this. They're helping us to express what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, put it in its proper context, and ultimately to turn our eyes to the Lord, to fix our eyes in the right place. Consider Psalm 70. This is a song written in the time of distress. David's life is under threat. A number of times this happens in his life, right? When he's fleeing from Saul or when he's fleeing from his son Absalom, right? Many times he is, death's doorstep could very well be near. And what is he doing? He's writing a song. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. Then here's where he turns his eyes to the Lord. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. That's a song, right? Where he's in the worst situation of his life and what is he doing? He's turning his thoughts in song, in praise to the Lord. On the other side of the emotional spectrum, if you would, consider Psalm 95. Here's a cry of one who's joyful. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So across the whole spectrum, we should sing. James chapter five, James exhorts the cheerful to sing when he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Of course, that's not an exhortation that if you're suffering, you shouldn't sing, right? We just read Psalm 70 and it dealt with that. Consider that in your suffering, your songs can be prayers. This is one of my favorites that we sing here. My God, my Father, blissful name. If pain and sickness rend this frame and life almost apart, is not thy mercy still the same to cheer my drooping heart? If cares and sorrows me surround their power, why should I fear? My inward peace they cannot wound if thou, my God, art near. That's a prayer. A prayer from a place of sorrow and suffering where you're singing this back to God. I imagine most of us are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata and her life, 50 years now as a quadriplegic, confined to a wheelchair. And she has written and spoken and sung extensively on the power of song and what it does for those who are suffering. And she wrote in a blog post a few years back, she said this, I have learned to sing my way through suffering. She says, when my weary soul falters, singing is a way of turning my soul Godward especially when affliction tries to drag me in the opposite direction. When my mind is in a brain fog, I can still express my confidence in Christ through hymns I know by heart. If I am not able to speak my praise, I can sing my praise. When I sing a hymn, the wise words enriched by my whisper of a melody become my sacrifice of soulful praise to God. Sing at every time, every emotion of our life. And even the scriptures touch on the fact that there's not an inappropriate time of day to sing, right? Psalm 59, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. It's a good time to sing in the morning. 
For you have been a fortress to me, a refuge in the day of my distress. What about at night? You're lying in your bed, Psalm 63. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Or maybe you're in jail at midnight, like Paul and Silas, right? What are you doing? You're singing hymns to God. Prisoners are listening to them. So there's no inappropriate time to sing, to turn your heart to the Lord in song. So brothers and sisters, see that God has given us song for every moment, every situation of life, every emotional thing we're feeling, every trial, every joy. This is a good gift from a gracious God who wants us to cry out to him, who wants to hear us sing to him, to express trust in him. And these songs serve, especially for those times, we just don't know what to say. We don't know what to sing. So sing these things. Secondly, I want us to be encouraged by this, that singing is primarily about our hearts. Two passages we've already looked at in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3, Paul writes and he says, you know, you're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. How? With your heart. Colossians 3, the same thing, right? He says that you're doing this with thankfulness in your hearts to God. When Christians sing, God cares more about the heart of the singer than he does about the vocal skill of the one singing. That's, that should be a great encouragement to those who don't think of themselves as skilled, right? God cares more about my heart than what I ha- am skilled to do. You can, because here's the, here's the inverse. You can have a beautiful voice, sing amazing hymns of praise to God, have a dead heart. Does that please the Lord? No, it's from this right kind of heart. Amos chapter five, the Lord addresses this issue with the nation of Israel. They're going through all the motions of worship. They've got the temple, the tabernacle, or the the temple, the sacrificial system. They're singing, but the Lord addresses them and he says, I'd rather you stop singing than continue to do this with wrong hearts, this hypocritical worship. So the Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The Lord is pleased by the song sung of the Christian who can't stay on pitch, whose voice is cracking like mine was this morning because it's dry, right? The Lord's pleased when it comes from the heart. To sing from the heart is to sing. It's about the vertical dimension of our song, the one to whom it is directed. Our concern is not first what others think, but our concern is with pleasing God, directing him to who who is worthy of praise. Paul says in Ephesians 5, you remember he says, don't be drunk with wine to the point of excess, to drunkenness, because that's debauchery. Rather be filled with the Spirit. To sing from the heart is to be filled by the Spirit and to sing in his empowerment. So if you're a Christian, you're filled with the Spirit of God, that means you are to sing. You have a reason to sing. You have a song to sing, and it's a song of praise to God for what he has done. 
Thirdly, I want you to consider this encouragement. Sing in anticipation of the new creation. What do I mean by that? When we spend eternity with God, what will we be doing? Singing. We're going to be singing in eternity with God. The throne room scenes in Revelation help us give us some insight into this, right? In Revelation 5, the lamb is Jesus Christ. He's the one that's worthy and able to open the scroll. And what's the response of all those in heaven around the throne? They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In the new creation, we're going to be singing. Isaiah prophesies of a day when the Lord will swallow up death forever and he'll wipe away tears. He does this in Isaiah chapter 25. And that leads right into Isaiah 26, which is a song. And it says, this is the song that will be sung on that day. When death is wiped away, tears are no more. What will the people of God be doing? They'll be singing. So go read Isaiah 26 on your own. But that song in Isaiah 26, it's a song of praise to God, a a, a God who brings salvation, who's an everlasting rock and who humbles the proud. We're gonna be singing for all eternity of the greatness of God and what he has done. Many other places in Isaiah, singing in the new creation has a prominent place. I'm not gonna go read these passages. I'll just give you the reference and tell you what's going on. But in, in Isaiah 44, Isaiah shows that in the day when the Lord redeems Israel, and then he goes on in chapter 49, and he talks about when he has compassion on his people, those who have forsaken him. He says in chapter 52, when all the ends of the earth see the salvation of our God. And then in chapter 65, when he's talking about the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, every one of those references is speaking about singing happening. When, we, when we're in this place, In the new creation, when we realize this and see what God has done, what do the people of God do? They sing. They sing with joy. When all is made right again and the work of redemption is fully and finally realized, the enemies of God are defeated, what do the people of God do? They sing. They sing with joy. There's something else that I, as I was considering this today, uh, or this, this topic There's something else glorious about the new creation and it's this. Those who can't physically sing now will sing one day. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah is using this contemporary promise of a return from exile. You remember they were, the Jews were exiled out of the land and they're gonna come back. And he's using this first return of the Jews to, to look forward to a better day, a better return that is coming. And in that greater day, notice who will sing. Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I think, well, I know that that there are some people that physically can't sing now for, for different reasons, or their voice may be a far cry from what it once was. They used to be able to sing what we call beautifully, and now they can't. There's nothing left there. And so you, you hear these commands, you see the goodness that God has designed in singing, and you go, I want to, but I can't. 
So I think there's encouragement for you here. What the Lord wants, I think, those who are physically unable to sing, to see, is that you can still sing with your heart. That's where all songs begin. You can groan eagerly as you wait for the redemption of our bodies. And while you can't sing here now as you wish, one day you will, right? And one day you'll join in this glorious song from Isaiah 35. It concludes, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's an encouragement, right? That, that one day we will sing again. No sorrow and sighing, only joyous singing. Finally, I want us to do this. Turn to Hebrews chapter eight for me. Put your, your finger in two places. First of all, in Hebrews chapter eight and then in Hebrews chapter two. Last thing I think that should serve as an encouragement to us in our singing is this. Jesus leads us in song. Hebrews chapter eight, verses one and two. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The entire book of Hebrews is the, the preacher, it seems like it was delivered maybe as one sermon, trying to convince his audience that Jesus is so much better than what they had under the old covenant system. And not to forsake Jesus to go back to this. You had the shadow before, now you have the substance in Jesus. And so in chapter eight, he's saying, under that Old Testament sacrificial system, you had a high priest, but now you have a better high priest. And in chapter, or chapter eight, he's making that point. In chapter seven, he was saying he's a better priest because he's a priest forever. Now, I want you to notice, Jesus is our high priest. That means he intercedes on our behalf before God. That's what the, the high priest does. And he does that now in heaven as a minister in the holy places. So in heaven, there's a holy place where Jesus enters into by his blood. But it's that word minister that's really interesting. Because in the, the underlying Greek, what that word is, is actually, it's what the word that we get our word liturgy from. I'm not going to try and say it in Greek because you would laugh. It would not be a very uh, good attempt. But the liturgy is what we do. We call what we do when we gather together liturgy because it simply means the work of the people of God in worship. And there's a, in the, under the Old Testament system, there's a lead liturgist, a lead minister. And, and even in our context, that's kind of what I do is I seek to lead you in song through planning and singing and all of these different things. But under the Old Covenant worship system, you have this high priest who's the lead minister, the lead liturgist. But what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus is now the lead minister, the lead liturgist leading his people in the worship and service of God. So flip over to chapter two, Hebrews chapter two, and we see how this comes about, what this looks like in a sense. Hebrews chapter two, I want you to start in verse 10. He writes, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist 
and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. In Hebrews 10, he starts there in verse 10. And what the writer of Hebrews is communicating is that the father has purposed to bring to glory his sons, his chosen one, his elect. That's us who placed our faith in Christ. We are sons of God. And he's chosen to do that through the suffering and death of Jesus. That's what he's communicating in those first, first 11, or first uh, verse, verse 10. And then in verse 11, now we the sons have the same source as Jesus, namely the Father, is what he says in verse 11. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus is identified, we're, we're identified with him. We're, we're brothers with Jesus. And then what the writer of Hebrews does is he goes to Psalm 22. And he quotes from there to make his point. And the Psalm 22 should be familiar to us. It's a messianic psalm. The first words of that psalm, Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, there's a progression through that psalm. It's written by David, but it is typological of what Jesus would experience. So what David is experiencing is looking forward to the day when the better David comes, Jesus. And that's why you can read through it and you're like, wow, that looks and sounds a lot like what happened to Jesus. Well, because that's what it's doing. It's pointing forward. But in Psalm 22, there's this progression and it moves like this. Verses one through 18, you see passion or suffering and death, right? There's verses that talk about uh, the, the, the abuse and the suffering that Jesus experienced that David also experienced. And then you see in verses 19 through 21, what seems to be like a resurrection, a rescue. Well, that's what Jesus experienced. And then in verse 22, it begins a whole new section that is all praise, and it's almost picturing for us Jesus' ascension into heaven and his heavenly session where he now intercedes on our behalf as our high priest, as our lead minister, as our lead liturgist. And so when the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 22, he quotes verse 22, which is beginning this whole new section in Psalm 22 of praise to God that's picturing Jesus's heavenly ministry. And so if we understand Psalm 22 rightly, which we do, and we understand David's experience being uh, picturing what was to come in what Jesus is now doing, we see that Jesus is now in the heavenly congregation, praising God, declaring to his brothers, us, the greatness of the name of God. So he's, he's proclaiming, look what God has done. Look how great and glorious he is. And he's encouraging and exhorting us to sing. That's fantastic. Jesus is leading us in song. Picture this. Jesus is in heaven, leading the worship of God, calling all those who he has redeemed his brothers and inviting us and encouraging us and empowering us and leading us in worship. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning, Jesus is the one that's leading us. It's not me. 
It's not Aaron. It's not Jess. First, it's Jesus leading us in song. If you're a, what you would consider a weaker voice in singing, you're helped by somebody who's a stronger voice, right? I remember when I was in Bible college and in choir, I was one of the stronger voices as I was sang in the bass part, and I would sit next to a guy who couldn't sing it as well, because if I sang it loudly, that would help him sing it more clearly. So you're aided in singing by others who sing. That's why at Calvary, it's wonderful when everybody sings, the, the weaker voices are encouraged to sing more. They're like, well, nobody's going to hear what, what I'm doing. I'm going to sing loudly because that's what I'm commanded to do. Weaker voices are helped by stronger voices. And so when it comes to understanding the importance of Jesus leading us in song, I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson teach on this passage, and he made this comment. He said, we're encouraged to sing, knowing that Jesus is covered by his shed blood our sins, but by his voice, he even covers our tunelessness and enables us to bring our praises into the presence of the Heavenly Father. Right? As we sing together, Jesus is leading us in song, He makes our song a sacrifice of praise to God. He makes it acceptable to God. That's why it's not how beautiful and wonderful it is. It's about the heart. That's why on Sunday morning when we really mess up a song, I'm not destroyed by that. Because ultimately I understand like we're seeking to do this in praise to God from the right kind of heart and that is what pleases him. So Christians, understand this, that today and every day, Jesus is leading you in song. Jesus makes your song beautiful. He makes it acceptable to God, a song of praise, not because the quality of your song is great, but because you're singing the song of the redeemed. You're singing how great God is. You're singing how wonderful the redemption is that's been provided for you in the face of Jesus Christ. Your heart has been transformed to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so you sing declaring that reality. And when we sing, we're doing what we were made to do, which is to worship God, to sing praises to him. So the final exhortation is this. Come, Christians, join to sing loud praise to Christ our King. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a wonderful gift of grace, not only in yourself, but enabling us and giving us tools to praise you and to praise you through song. And so, Lord, may we see today how glorious you are, how worthy of all of our praise you are. May we hear your commands and we love you and we want to obey them and delight to do that because it pleases you and then understand that what you've commanded us to do is for our good and it is for your glory. So help us to sing. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.